There are always lives at stake. That's what keeps us employed. See, we do what we do, so you can do what you do. Welcome to Rediscovery, the Star Trek recap podcast that knows burying your gaze and bringing them back to life is a trick reserved for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and even then, they never did it. I'm joined by my science officer, Ben. You will have a lot of work to do this episode. Ben, are you prepared? I, Captain, as much as possible. You better be. <laughs> In Saints of Imperfection, Discovery comes full circle with closing most open-ended storylines from Season 1 and Season 2. We immediately pick up where we left off from the previous episode rescuing Tilly from the mycelial network and chasing Spock's stolen shuttle. The shuttle is finally locked onto, but in another cliffhanger, it is not Spock inside, but Philippa Giorgio. She's recovered the craft without Spock in it. It seems everyone is looking for Michael's brother. This gives Captain Pike his first run-in with Section 31 and its mononymous Captain Leland. They appear to be old friends, or are they? But the tension is high immediately. Who is this organization and why are they hunting Spock? With Giorgio's arrival on Discovery and the reaction this creates, Pike is suspicious to the extreme. When escorting Michael to speak with the Section 31 liaison arrived to free Giorgio, Pike sees Michael's face fall into shock and agony when she realizes it's Tyler. This is enough for Pike to demand answers, fearing for the safety of his crew and presumably being very unbalanced by the existence of these black ops. Cut to the mission to recover Tilly, Arium and Stamets manoeuvre Discovery to be half inside the mycelial network and half in the plane of reality. May has finally managed to spit out exactly what is happening. There is some kind of toxin overtaking the network that she believes is a malevolent force. This toxin was weaponized when Discovery started jumping through the network, so May believes they are responsible for it and responsible for killing it. Stamets and Michael cross into the mycelial plane and find Tilly and May, who have tracked May's monster into Discovery. Following its trail, they find a disheveled, beardy Dr. Hugh Culber. May screams at the others to kill it, and Hugh runs off with Stamets in pursuit. Burnham fills Pike in on this complication as the ship starts to be torn apart. Tyler uses his Section 31 com badge to call for help, and Leland's ship decloaks and holds Discovery steady with a tractor beam. Pike is not impressed at this subterfuge. Stamets reconnects with Hugh just as the others arrive. May takes Tilly's phaser rifle, but Tilly talks her down from using it. As Burnham explains, Hugh wasn't attacking them, just using the deadly toxin from the mycelial plane as armour to protect himself from the spores. Stamets works out that Hugh's energy was transferred to the network through him when he held Hugh's dying body, and he was reconstituted by the Jarsep microbes. But when they return to the interface between planes, Kolber's mycelial matter can't pass through. He's willing to let himself be reclaimed by the Jarsep spores so Stamets will return to safety, but Tilly asks May to try transporting him back with the pods used to kidnap her. May doesn't know if it will work, but promises to try. The Emperor blackmails Leland to buy Discovery just enough extra time for Michael and the others to return, and the ship jumps back into normal space. In engineering, Hugh's naked body appears as the mycelial pod disintegrates. He's back, but the last link to the mycelial plane is gone. 
Pike visits Leland's ship to find Vice Admiral Cornwell, who informs both captains that analysis of the red bursts has detected tachyons and forces them to make up so they can work together to find Spock, the only proper lead they have. Carla, there, there, you know, normally I say there was so much going on in this episode, but I actually feel like this one had a pretty straightforward plot and spent a lot of time on it. How did you feel about this episode? What do you think the straightforward plot was? I'm curious to hear that. Well, it was it was pretty much entirely a rescue mission to get Tilly back from the mycelial plane, and we got a couple of surprises there. Mm. But it wasn't like a couple of the other episodes so far this season, I feel like I've had three or four things going on, maybe with the exception of the Kronos episode, which mm. was mostly about the Kronos plotline. Mm. But I felt like this one sort of had one main thing going on and really focused on it, which I liked. You know, I mean, it had the subplot of, oh, here's Pike's old mate who's running Section 31. But, you know, that not much happened with that apart from they were dicks. I don't know. I feel like that there was a lot of subterfuge with everything. But I agree with you in the way that, look, I think that, I mean, this is a third of the way through this season and we're just on the precipice of where the storyline that Harberts and Gretchen Miller designed is about to end Mm. and I think um it did wrap up so many things that we already knew about yeah so there wasn't a lot to kind of learn or keep track of yeah it didn't introduce a lot of new stuff yeah well except for one big new thing what well introduced Hugh back into the show oh yes but he's an old thing too well he is (laughs) he's been recycled quite literally (laughs) uh which was which was weird yeah so weird how did you feel about this episode? Uh, look, I I really loved about the first half of it. Mm. I was really into it. I, I was on the edge of my seat during the intro sequence. I thought it was one of the like the best intros we've had so far. I mean, they've all been really good. Um, second episode was also amazing, but just the action packed sequence of chasing the shuttle uh, and like you know the, doing this the Star Wars trick of like stopping so that the ship goes past. Uh, it was just cool. It was a lot of fun, and, and you know there was lots of involvement from the bridge crew, which is you know I always love. And then the great reveal where Spock's not on board. It's bloody Emperor Giorgio, yeah. which I was not expecting. Um, I love her theme song as well. Oh, it's yeah. so good. <laughs> she's the best. It's Darth Vader. She is Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, yeah. she's an evil overlord. So, yeah, totally. <laughs> she even wears all black. Like, yeah. she's she's got it going on. So, yeah, I really Has love that. problematic issues with her adopted daughter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the analogy could go very far. It could. Um, it just means she just needs to have superpowers, which she kind of does, I guess. Yeah. And then, um, the, the, also the first half of like the whole plan to go into the mycelial plane and rescue Tilly and the development of May revealing why she's brought Tilly there, I thought was kind of awesome and interesting. But then I felt like the plot slowed right down and it was one of those episodes where we're trying to tell you it's urgent, it's urgent, like we're all going to die, it's urgent, it's urgent, but then they take quite a lot of time to have these long, dramatic moments, mm. which kind of I felt took away a bit from the, the urgency of what was happening. Mm. Um, but, I mean, you know, I still enjoyed the second half. I have very mixed feelings about Hugh's return. Oh, it's but, so problematic. But I want to hear what you think about it because I know, I know you're not happy. Uh, the first time I watched this episode, I was just in shock. Like, I couldn't actually believe what I was watching. And... I couldn't process it. And then the second time I watched it, all I did was cry. Like it's such, I feel like actually like it sounds so dramatic, but I feel betrayed by this franchise of what they have done. As a queer person, all I have ever seen 
up until very recently is queer people die, be murdered, be abused, die of AIDS, be, you know, a point of journey for a straight person. They Queer people and queer bodies have been used as a plot device to amp up drama, mm. right, and have been completely disposable. Yeah. Right. Once their use has gone, the straight for the straight people or the white people, they are disposed of, and that's why the bury your gaze trope is so potent. And so, for that to happen, it was disappointing, but something that we're used to. But now, to use this gay man's body as a plot device for this re-emergence, this emotional re-emergence, is so awful. It's like, why would you put a queer couple on there in the first place to do that to them first of all then I have to understand that both of them have been tortured during this period of time Hmm. of waiting or in between being reunited they've once been dead and tortured by the network the other one's been tortured because he's lost his partner it's just so unnecessary and so manipulative and it just made me so upset you know, especially we'll talk about it in short tricks, but, you know, these actors are iconic for the queer community. They're, it's so meaningful to have them together on this show. And it's just, it feels really fucking cheap to me, to be perfectly honest. And I don't understand what their thinking was behind it. Do you think maybe they they feel like they made a mistake in buying into the barrier gaze trope and killing off Culver in the first place and now they in some way they kind of want to undo it feeling that that will undo that mistake? I've no idea. It feels impregnated into the storyline. Mm. Like, you know, and there's also as I said most of it feels wrapped up, like, you know, the band's back together again. Tyler's been requested to be a liaison, ordered to be a liaison now Hmm. on the Discovery. So everyone who is still alive from the first season is back on the Discovery in whatever capacity. But everything feels wrapped up and everything feels like it's in its place. So I do feel like it was purposeful, but perhaps not to the point that he was going to come back. Hmm. But I, to this extent, but I do feel like it was... And it's just so offensive because sci-fi is so populated by queer people, you know, and it just, it feels like such a disservice to the community. And now I'm sure they're probably going to try to cover it up by it being this romance story or even worse, it's going to be like Hughes all messed up from what he's gone through. I don't know, but I have massive stink face over this whole situation. Mm. I mean, I think it would be so unsatisfying for it just to go back to the way it was. Because even though we might want that, you can't imagine that possibly happening, really. I no. Mean, whatever he's been through, even if he is back to being normal Hugh, and, you know, he's psychologically, he's been through hell. They both um, have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Stamets also has been not just, you know, grieving the loss of his lover, but also he was tortured by the network too. Like what um, Lorca put him through mm. to get to the Mirror Universe nearly killed him mm. and the state that he was in which is referenced in this episode, when Hugh died, was not, he was not okay. You know, he was linked into the network in a way that sort of fundamentally altered him, and which is the catalyst for what happens in this episode. 
So yeah, I just I don't know. It's I, I I felt really weird about it. I mean, also it's not something Star Trek does not have a long history of killing people and bringing them back. Like usually when mm. people die in Star Trek, they stay dead. <laughs> Do you know? Literally, the only one I can think of is Spock. Yeah, Spock's the only one. But yeah. you know, and that's like a full on. That's like two films worth. Three, oh well, three films really. I cried so much in yeah. that movie with that. Yeah. But then when he comes back, you know, he's not quite the same, and he mm. takes some time to readjust and. And you kind of, I don't know, I feel like they set that up really well. I mean, the whole plot of the film in which he dies is about rebirth mm. and and Genesis, like the device is called the Genesis device. So it feels like they, they earned that. Whereas this does not feel like they planned to do this from the start. I think maybe but they planned to do it. But I think if they wanted it. to be contrite, there could have just been so many other ways to do it. Like yeah. develop a lesbian relationship, have other gay people on Discovery. Yeah, You know, it's like... Yeah. As always, the the problem with these things is not that you choose a particular storyline for a particular character. It's that the same storyline keeps coming up for the only characters who are representative of certain, you know, sectors of the community on these shows. Like you're always killing off one of the gay couple. That's that's why it's shit. Like it's not because one gay person dies in one show. And yeah, and it's yeah, it is gross. I I agree. Um, and I and yeah, and look at also. It's just a weird thing. It's just was just a really weird thing to do. <laughs> so weird. It's just weird, you know. So weird. And like you know, I also feel like from a techno babble perspective, they really twisted themselves into knots to justify it, and they didn't set it up terribly well. Like no, all that's of why stuff, I said at the beginning, like you better be ready to explain oh, ready. all of this shit. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm across what they said happened. <laughs> And I'll tell you why it's nonsense. No, it's actually, <laughs> I actually, it actually makes a surprising amount of sense, but it relies almost entirely on things that are explained or introduced in this episode. That's what makes it feel kind of rushed. cheap to me yeah. and, and rushed. And even though I suspect probably they were planning this the whole time, like they could have seeded it a bit more. Maybe it could have come in an episode or two later. They could have had a couple more things happen with the mycelial network that set it up a bit more clearly. I also look. I also want to say, like the mycelial plane itself, I found quite disappointing. What like, do you mean? It just looks a lot like the mycelial spore garden on Discovery, except under a black light. <laughs> you know, like it's trees and fronds that are in glowy blue and pink colours, but otherwise seems to be a pretty normal just place. But also, like it's a whole other plane of existence, and they're just standing on a plane, like a literal plane, <laughs> like full of like weird plants, and I'm like. Guys, come on. Like, I know you've gone with a mycelial theme, but also all of your representations of mycelium look like other kinds of plant life. Like, they look like plant life for starters, and fungus is not plants. Mm. It's just weird. And I was so hoping that seeing the actual mycelial network, because we've never really seen it before. We've seen the spores. We've seen kind of glimpses of it. But now we're visiting it, and it just seemed a bit, I don't know, I was a little bit disappointed. This may be where you and I differ in our life experience, Ben, but the mycelial network very much looks like what life looks like when you're on mushrooms. Oh, okay. Oh, well, now, <laughs> that completely changes my opinion. That's genius. So I actually had that written down as a note. In my notes, I was like, I really love that the mycelial, mycelial network looks like when you're on hallucinogens. <laughs> okay. And it really has that, yeah, it... I mean, I understand your point. Yeah. Um, and I always kind of wrap that up into the kind of Q continuum kind of stuff of like 
they can't show us our true selves, be, their true selves, because we can't actually conceptualize it. Mm. And if we're within that plane, they can only show us things that we can relate to in order to be able to move within that environment. So yeah. I always kind of position it in that. But I do hear what you're saying. Like, I think they had so much more license to do it. But I don't know much about, I mean, Paul Stamets has written a book called Mycelial Running. That's the real Paul Stamets, just in yes. case anyone is confused that, about time travel being involved. <laughs> the real mycologist. Yeah. I'm wondering, it'd be something interesting to look into because I'm wondering whether he did any concept design with them about this kind of stuff. Uh, and I hazard a guess that it would be based on mushroom hallucinations yeah, well, well. <laughs> quite possibly quite possibly i mean look you know it's my innocence showing that i had no idea that that was the case um quite a boring existence in some ways um it's been very exciting in an imaginative way uh maybe not so exciting in a seeing things that aren't there kind of way well speaking of uh being provincial mm. i do love pikes I do love Pike's reaction wow. to everything and that I say that because he says call me provincial in yeah. questioning everything that is quite obviously like a fart, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. There's serious energy in those rooms and he's he's picking it up. Yeah. And again, you know, there's that issue of trust and I I was so worried Michael was just going to not tell him uh about, you know, Giorgio being from the mirror universe and she doesn't, but she does let on that yeah, there is something I'm not telling you, but I can't tell you right now. It's I'll, I'll tell you later. And he's like, he's like, can you, you know? Yeah, he's like, don't let me chase you. Yeah, but I also like that when she asks him for that time, he's just like, done. You know, he's like, yes, I'm trusting you, but you know, come through for me. Like, it's such a leadership boner for this man. Oh Seriously, God, he's it's the like, best. It's that fine line of hard and soft, you know, like that little sweet spot. Yeah. Um. But also I've written a note here that says he leads by instinct, which I think is quite a common thread to all of the great captains that we see and also leaders, I think. They have their protocol, they have their training, but really they're very led by instinct by what they feel is right and wrong and what is going on. And that mm. is quite apparent in this episode with him. Yeah. There was that juxtaposition of Section 31 and traditional Starfleet. And Pike very much represents... All the things Very that are best. Trad, yes. You know, he has that speech where he says, Starfleet is a pro. I mean, oh, God, I love that so much. Like, I, probably some people thought it was hokey, but I was just like, no, this is, he really means it. And that's what sells it. And, you know, Anson Mount's doing a fantastic job of embodying this person who really believes in the mission and isn't going to leave somebody behind. And he tells his whole crew, that's what we're doing. And everyone's like, yeah. And, and also, you know, he's just such a good judge of character. Like, he's met Tilly two or three times and he's like, I know that she would give her life for any of us. Mm. Um, when she's when he's talking to Burnham, he says to her, I don't know you that well, but I know you well enough. And I'm like, yeah, that's you, you don't know her that well, but you do know her well enough. Like that is very clear. So, yeah, I'm, I'm loving him still. Uh, and his reaction to Leland, who's his old mate, who's running Section 31, he's like, no, nah. uh, come well, on. Well, he's such a company man and to not know that this exists – really shits on everything that he believes in mm. in this organization because black ops really is analogous to the cia right yeah the cia are out there you know rigging elections assassinating world leaders you know putting people into place drugging people mm. um so to he's he does seem provincial in that moment yeah to 
be so upset by the existence of this organization mm. but also their tech like there was so many there was so many woe moments for me in this like when they decloak from being a rock yeah and also, it took me the second watch to realize where he goes, what the hell kind of comm is that? And he's using a badge. He's got a comm badge, yeah. Dude. Which they, I mean, they're, and they're all wearing, like they've got the little insignia. And it is a, it's, it's like a comm badge, but nobody else has got any technology in it. And I think that's really nice. It's a nice explanation for us because when you look at, yeah. when you look at Star Trek now, like if we made this show, and some people complain about this, and I don't understand their position, because when you look at Star Trek now, you look at the technology they have on the Enterprise in the original series, and you're like... I wouldn't have that in my car today, right? <laughs> that is that is crap. Maybe in my car. But... <laughs> uh, well, I don't have a car, so you know, I'm I'm theoretically I'm imagining a theoretical car. But you know, I've sat in a Tesla. Like it's more advanced than the old school Enterprise. It can drive itself for starters. It's got better screens. Got all this stuff, and and like you, know, we're all used to having these supercomputers going around in our pockets. So the idea that you have to have you know, a flip phone to talk to people in 250 years' time, however long it is, is like ridiculous and so when you reimagine it for a modern audience having this thing where it's difficult to do full-on star trek style communication through subspace and miniaturizing it is quite a feat so showing a character going how the hell do you do that that's that's secret technology which will become mainstream and used you know but that's how the real world works too you know like there were the the technology that made say you know an ipad possible existed for decades before they made an iPad, but it was very expensive to produce and so it wasn't in the mainstream. And, of course, I absolutely believe that technology is gatekeeped gatekeepered by (laughs) powerful, powerful organisations, whether it is, you know, a governmental organisation that's developed it or even uh, capitalistic organisations that don't want to let people know that they have that They want to hang on to it till they can exploit it properly, yeah. And that actually makes... That actually makes canon extremely interesting that they mm. have cloaking technology and it never even makes it into fleet until a thousand years into the future until the time travelers. Mm. And can we say, hello, maybe I'm right again. <laughs> We've got some tachyon particles. We do have tachyons, it's true. What but if? they could mean anything, Carla. Could it? Yep, it could literally mean almost anything. Really? Yeah, they don't exist. They're not real. <laughs> I know. Because they're from the future. Well, you know where they're from? You know, this is a fascinating. I, I was hoping up. you, yes, I, I was hoping you would explain this. I'll look this up. So tachyon, tachyons are a theoretical particle. There's no evidence that they actually exist. Um, there's a lot of theoretical writing about them and what they would be like if they did exist. But the guy who wrote about them and gave them their name, uh, Gerald Feinberg, um, coined the term in 1967 in a paper he wrote about a theoretical faster-than-light particle because this is the important thing about tachyons is that they always travel faster than light, which means that they could potentially go backwards in time. If they existed, you could potentially build a tachyon anti-telephone, the device that you could use to send information backwards in time. So you can't travel physically backwards in time, but if tachyons are real, you could potentially, by building now a device that could detect the tachyons, and someone sending a signal in the future and you would detect them coming back in time and get information from the future, which could change history and cause paradoxes, right? So they don't exist as far as we know. But the guy who wrote it, he was inspired to write the paper about a potentially faster-than-light particle because he read a short story called Beep by a guy named James Blish. Now, James Blish then went on to write the first-ever Star Trek novel for adults, which was called Spock Must Die, which is a lot of people think, the first ever use of the word tachyon in science fiction. Yeah. 
So it's like this sort of full circle. Like he was, in, he inspired the idea. A scientist gave it a name and a theoretical framework, and then he used it and didn't just use it in sci-fi. Wow. Used it in Star Trek. It's academia at its best. Yeah. So <laughs> so it's quite an interesting history. But yeah, they don't they don't really exist. Um. So when um I think it's Leland who suggests it could be time travel, and then Pike says, yeah, but it could also be transporter stuff or this other thing. And the Admiral says, you're both right. Or maybe none of you are. Like, I think they're setting up that this is a clue, but we're not going to tell you what it means. And maybe it does mean It's like, you might think you know what it means, but really it's dead hue from the future. (laughs) Oh, God. No. No. Sorry. Oh, man. I was just trying to think of the worst thing that they could do. (laughs) There's a lot of bad things they could do. Um, I have so many notes on this. Um, Hit me. Mostly about Pike. His hair seems to be getting bigger. And better. <laughs> and better. Oh, he's got such good hair. His face is so expressive. You're an yes. actor. Tell me all about this. Uh, How look, fucking hard would this be? It's interesting to contrast Anson Mount's performance with Sonequa Martin-Green because you know she's playing a character who has mostly got her emotions under control. So she is often portraying uh, Michael with quite a flat affect. But then, you know, in emotional moments, lets it out. And she's great. She's amazing at that. So controlled. And that is like, that is super difficult. But also just as difficult and just as wonderful is Anson Mount's performance because Pike wears his emotions on his sleeve, by which I don't mean, you know, he's overly emotional and, and not. Yeah, you can read him like a book. But, but he, yeah. he shows what he means. Mm. And, um, but, he's, and he, but he's in control. But he's, he's not in control by repressing those emotions. He's in control by channeling them. And so, yeah, he shows on his face and, yeah, he's just wonderful. I mean, I've got to say, though, I like so many of the cast members of this show. Oh, they're all wonderful. Um, and I really liked that uh, there was there are a few lines for the regular bridge crew this uh, this time around. Reese gets a couple of lines. Mm. Uh, Nan got to have her resting bitch face on, yeah. which was amazing. She's still wearing the skirt. I yep. noticed it this episode. Yeah. and it's like, I don't know what's underneath. Is it tights? Because she's got, like, knee-high boots. I'm loving it. Yeah, but she's like one. she's wearing a skirt while she's doing. Now she's chief of security. Yeah, she's still in a skirt. You don't need to wear pants to be chief no, of security. It's probably easier. Yeah, yeah, it probably <laughs> is actually more freeing to run around. That's great. Yeah, and like speaking of which, like in the future, we probably all have calorie controlled diets by re, what are they called again? The reconstituted. Oh uh, well, they don't. They kind of don't. They have don't have a name in this one. T- well, they don't have replicators yet. But they do have... Well, maybe that's why there's fatter bodies on Discovery because yeah. that's what I want to talk about. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I always thought in the future, because they've got the replicators, you can just have a completely calorie-controlled diet and eat exactly what you want and never put on any weight. So that's why everyone's thin in the future. <laughs> yeah. But this one I've noticed like there's so many big butts walking around in mm. the background in uniforms and it just... And then like with Nan and stuff, it's like, oh, finally I can imagine a uniform that maybe my body will fit into. It's been really thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's good. And I think, I mean, everyone's fit. Like they're all running around the sure. corridors all the time. You know, slouch in, in uh, no. the Federation. You're in Starfleet. You've got, Starfleet. You've, got, you've got shit to do. Like you've got you to gotta get out there and do it. But yeah, but they, it's, yeah, it's good. They're showing a nice diverse range of, of bodies. Of butts. Of butts. <laughs> uh, look, i, I got to admit I wasn't looking at the butts as much, but maybe I will now. <laughs> I'll be noticing them now next Now you episode. won't be able to stop looking in the background. Well, I mean, I did notice Hugh's butt, of course. Oh, yeah. First nude butt on Star Trek, was it? No. Has there been one before? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, we've Message seen... Message us, please, with nude butts. Yeah, we want to know all about Only them. from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, just from Star Trek. Only Star Trek butts. I mean, because we've seen, we've seen plenty of bare chests. Uh, oh, so many. Starting with Sulu oh. way back in the day. Holy shit. Enterprise is like just oh, yeah. gay the, porn. Always getting their t- shirts off. 
<laughs> getting around in the it's gear. It's actually like uncomfortable. Mm. Anyway, that's mm. not a conversation for another time. No. Yes. Should we go to short chats? I think we will. Okay. <laughs> now it's time for Rediscovery Short Chats, where we talk news, trivia, and anything related to discovery. We will also be taking questions during this segment from you, the listener. So please follow our socials to be in touch at Rediscovery Pod. Ben, what do you have to talk about today? Well, this episode gives me the perfect chance to talk about something I love talking about, which is transporter technology in Star Trek. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Because such a big plot point in this episode. I love this analog version. And look, it's nice they have the, the pods, like the organic transporter. But really the thing that I wanted to talk about is that the way that it works in going between the two planes and the way that they talk about it really reestablishes that Star Trek transporters work in a way that, as far as we can tell, is impossible in the real world. Okay. Um, and if you've ever read anything, listeners, about the physics behind how matter transmission might actually work, the way it would have to work in the real world is so you would be scanned, then your body would be destroyed, and then uh, precise information about you would be transmitted via whatever means, and then you would be reconstructed from raw materials at the other end. It's just like the replicator, but for people. Exactly. Yeah. But that's not how Star Trek transporters work. What? No. Star Trek transporters (laughs) use some weird process that doesn't make any sense according to the laws of science that transforms your body into energy and then transmits that energy and then reconstitutes that energy into matter. So it is you the whole way. No. That is the way they talk about it. And look, I mean, it's a bit confused in a lot of Star Trek. Like, they've never really gone into a lot of detail about how transporters work. There's been technobabble about various things like Heisenberg compensators to measure accurately the position of atoms because that's impossible to do at a quantum scale. So they come up with some jargon to say, no, we can't actually do it. And the way they talk about it in this episode is explicitly about transforming someone into energy and then transmitting them and then reconstituting them. And that energy somehow is them. And that's the whole story about how Hugh becomes a person in the mycelial network is that his energy was transmitted into the mycelial plane through Stamets, who at the time was still a conduit for it. Mm. And then the spores, the the Jarsep on the other side, build a body uh, according to his energy pattern. Okay. Which made sense to them. And that's also how their organic transporter works. I mean, like I said earlier, they, they kind of bend over themselves backwards to explain how this is possible, but I still think it doesn't quite make sense. But it's, but it's pretty close. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting how explicit they were about this sort of transformation into energy and then reconstitution into matter, but how you're still you. And they never talk about it because Stamets talks about the conservation of matter or mass, which is a real physical concept where uh, the amount of mass in the universe cannot increase or decrease. Um, it just uh, it expands. Can be, well, the universe expands, just gets further away from itself. But um, And it's been further expanded into the amount of mass and energy because you can convert one into the other. It can't be increased or decreased. Um, and so his whole thing about how if she was destroyed, there'd be bits of her left. But if there was none of her there... Hmm. then that could only be explained because you can't just destroy it. Like you could burn her, but then there'd be bits of her DNA and like molecules left. But if she's been transported, then there would be no sign of her. So, yeah, interesting. I thought it was kind of fun, metaphysical, madness about death. Mm, yeah. You know, but life and death and the spirit and our existence beyond physical planes because I think that's kind of what people imagine dying to be like as well. Mm. I'm not sure, but uh, it certainly 
how I've thought about it in the past, particularly do. about the decomposition of the body and how everything is made out of atoms and carbon and, you know, all the materials of life, you yeah. know, yeah, and that we return to where we once came from and we'll come back again from the same material. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think I'm finally ready to talk about the queer significance of this version of Star Trek. Okay. So we have Tignataro, which we've talked about in the past, which is fabulous. Also, the actors who play Paul Stamets and Hugh Colbert are very dearly loved in the queer community. They were both in the original production of Rent. Rent is a AIDS musical, essentially. It sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, from the 90s, it's very famous. I don't know anything about it, but lots of people were very uh, falling over themselves about it. Also, Wilson Cruz has the honour of being the first gay person to play a gay character on TV. Really? In my so-called life. Wow. Yeah. So he is a trailblazer. When was that? I think it's like 96. That is horrendously recently. Right? (laughs) And uh, Anthony Rapp, who plays Stamets, kicked off the gay Me Too movement by accusing Kevin Spacey. Oh, wow. Of sexually assaulting him when he was a 16-year-old actor in New York. So Anthony Rapp um, has done an incredibly brave, because both of them at the time were one of the a handful of actors who were out. Mm. He's been out since he was a young teenager. He was a child actor. And then he also has the unfortunate indignity of also being the first person to kick off the gay Me Too movement and bring light to Kevin Spacey's behaviour. So the two of them together are stalwarts and heroes of the queer community. Who else do we have? We have Tig. Really like these. Oh, and we have Mia Kirshner who plays Amanda. Mm. She played probably one of the most notorious queer characters in queer TV. Mm. She was Jenny on the L Word. And we sometimes see on the Queer Trek hashtag people being like, what? Jenny's in Star Trek now. My two worlds are colliding. She's not actually queer, but the old word was obviously such a huge show for queer people in the early 2000s. So really, it's kind of like most of the active, iconic queer people are in this show. I can only think of really one more person that they should add that is in that stratosphere of queer icon is Jane Lynch. They need to bring in Jane Lynch. She would be great. Potentially Portia de Rossi. Although, I don't know, (laughs) Jane Lynch, What? who would she play? I mean, I feel like... She could be another salty... Yeah, well, this is what I was thinking. Oh, gregarious. Oh, you know who she could be? She could be Harry Mudd's (laughs) mum. That would be incredible. (laughs) Like, just turn up and, like, seem like she's going to be... Like telling him off, but then no, they're totally planning a con together. Like, how good would that be? <laughs> that is awesome. Okay, I mean, there's lots of other things you could play, but that's the one that immediately came to mind. And we need to get Portia de Rossi in as like a Topol Seven of Nine type oh, character. She would kill that <laughs> totally. Ah, oh. so that's my uh, that's my finalization of queer casting for Star Trek. But I just thought I'd give everybody the backstory on who these actors are and how we see them as the the gravity that they have behind them when yeah. they are all together on one show. It's obviously incredibly deliberate, cherry-picking these people to put them on the show. Mm. So when things like this happen, it's just like, what the fuck are you doing, bros, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does seem weird. And, I mean, of course, there's still a lot of representation that hasn't happened in the show. We don't have anybody who's genderqueer yeah. or non-binary. But I think that's weird because 
it's the one thing, and, and this is something I've been thinking watching Enterprise, it's the one thing that really dates it, makes it feel not like the future, is how retro and traditionally hetero everything Dude. is. Particularly Enterprise. So much fist fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Because you're just looking at it and also like just, I mean, one of the characters who I thought I was going to really like and then he just turns out to be such a bro uh, in a lot of episodes who? is Malcolm, right, the English character who's a bit stiff and you, you expect that he's going to like sort of relax a bit into the show. But he's just he's just such a bro, mm. you know, like when the episode where they go for shore leave on Riser and they're just trying to get laid and mm. it's just gross. And he gets drunk with his mate and they t- the way he talks about to Paul. I mean, I've learned a lot in the last decade, right? And it, that was like the 2000s. <laughs> like surely I would hope that by the time of Enterprise, things have only gotten better and more enlightened. But no, it's, it's such a reflection of the time that it was made. Mm. And then you look at things like there's that episode of Next Gen where Riker falls in love with the alien where it's taboo to have a gender. Mm. And... He wanted them to cast a man so it would be more significant, but they cast a woman, which was – and he's on record in interviews saying, I still think that was a mistake. We should have cast a man and I I should have made more of a fuss about that and tried to make them do it because then you would have had like a non-hetero kiss on Star Trek The Next Generation, which would have been amazing. Mm. But also that episode kind of also is weird because now you watch it and you go, that's the future and the only representation of people without traditional genders is an alien. Right. And so, yeah, it's weird. That's funny. I felt the same about Enterprise about Trip, mm. but I ended up loving him. Trip's like, yeah, he's just, there's something less dickish about him somehow. I don't know what it is. He's curious. Yeah. He's open-minded. Yeah. Um, well, because he has that early episode where he gets together pregnant. with the alien and then he gets <laughs> pregnant and he's like, and he's not shy about the whole thing. And then he gets pregnant and he's understandably pissed off. Yeah. But... You know, that's, yeah, I think that is a big difference. Look, the biggest thing that dates Enterprise, and it's the thing that irritates me the most about that show, is the blonde highlights that they put in <laughs> Tripp's hair and Scott Bakula's hair. Uh, that's some serious NSYNC frosted tips there. Oh, and man. they brush it into oblivion, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I only have two more things. Go for it. Leland and Pike homo vibes. Oh, it could be. I mean, they clearly were close and they're still kind of chummy, but I don't, I mean, you get the impression, yeah, Pike hasn't seen him for ages. Like last time he saw him, he was wrestling crocodiles on some place, which does sound like maybe that's a euphemism for something. <laughs> I was like, mm. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be a cool backstory. I'd be into that. Oh, I would love it. But clearly they're not, they're pissed off now. Although the way that they apologize to each other, I mean, and I'm always in two minds about this. Like, yeah, I think having more queer storylines is great, but I think also it's so important to show good, close friendships between straight folks, particularly mm. between men. Like this is something you see between women on TV a lot. Um, it's one of the reasons, like, you know, I always get a little bit annoyed with people. I understand why they want to ship Holmes and Watson, for example, in any version of Holmes and Watson. Um, and sometimes I've done it as well. Um, mm. But I think also the value of the relationship they have as friends or any two male characters have as friends where it's not just that very bro-y thing like with Tripp and Malcolm in Enterprise but where it's a deeper, more important friendship I think is also really, really important um, in addressing issues of toxic masculinity. Sure. Having said that, um, I also just don't think Leyland is hot enough for Anthony <laughs> 
Pike, Pike's way too hot for him. Well, maybe that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zit. Pike just realised, why am I with this idiot? <laughs> like, I'm too good for you. Yeah, both hot-wise and morally. <laughs> You've been listening to Rediscovery. All links to creatives are in the show notes or on our website, rediscoverypodcast.com. We'd love to connect with you. Please add us on Twitter and Facebook at rediscoverypod. Rediscovery is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. Find more entertainment for your ears at splendidchaps.com.